Well, you guys can open your Bibles once again to the book of Romans. I'm sorry, I did not bring any extra Bibles. We will read and be reading in the course of the sermon today from the ESV. I say that to you because as we read, I'm going to emphasize specific words. And if you have a different translation, you'll just have to pick out what that word is in your translation. They're not very different, so you ought to be able to see what I'm, what I'm getting to. But it's, it's very important that you guys bring your Bibles when you come. We are, we are going to be looking at a number of texts. And I'll be honest with you right up front. Guys, if, you, if we can't look in our Scriptures and find it there, then I don't want to teach it. We just we need to dismiss it otherwise. And so, I want us to dive in here. We'll look at we'll, what I have to say today is, is it's basic, but oh, it is so important. And it, as we see the overall argument of the Book of Romans, this comes out and it hits me in the face because I see it almost through the entire chapter two of the Book of Romans. There's there's a theme here that underlies this chapter. And I think as we look at it today, you guys will see it. I hope it, the Lord convinces us and convicts us of these things in a powerful way. So, if there is one thing, after we get done, I know we're flying through things and we just can't hit on everything in Romans. And boy, if you do, you know it ends up being a 10-year study. We're not doing that. This is going to be just kind of a three-month quick overview of the book of Romans. But if there's anything that I want you guys to grasp, anything at all, when we're done looking at this book, it is to be able to answer this question. What is justification? And why is it so important? Brethren, this is crucial because everything is at stake right here. Right on this doctrine. The question is nothing less than how to get to heaven. Being justified expresses being right with God. That you need to lay down. You want to define it? Well, there's a lot of ways to define it. A lot of forensic ways. A lot of legal ways. But basically, at the bottom of the barrel, folks, when you boil it all down, this is what you've got. To be justified is to be right with God. The magnitude of this is simply greater than, than what any of us feels. I mean, to some degree, God has given us a feeling for it. But it, that's the issue, folks. That's the issue right there. I don't simply want us to have a head knowledge of this doctrine of justification. I want us to feel the magnitude of this thing, the gravity of it. And there's just about nothing at all out there in this culture, in our society, that lays upon us the weight of this thing. I guarantee you, folks, football games don't do it. Burger King commercials don't do it. And most professing Christians don't give us a sense of the magnitude of what it means to be justified before God. It is huge. Huge. Being right with God. In, in, in so many people's estimation. I mean, it's basically on the level of, well, I graduated from college or I'm getting married or I got my first job. And in a lot of people's lives, it isn't even that important. 
There is nothing more important than your life, folks, that on that day of judgment, you stand right with God. Nothing more as far as your life is concerned. There was a man that thought that this was important. His name was John Bunyan. Most of you guys have heard that name before. Bunyan wrote a book called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And in that book, he relates how it was with his own soul before, I emphasize that, before he was saved, before he was converted. He says, I saw old people hunting after the things of this life as if they should live here always. And I found professing Christians much distressed and cast down when they met with outward losses, such as a husband, a wife, a child, etc. Lord, thought I, what ado is there about such little things as these? What seeking after carnal things by some and what grief of others for the loss of them? If they so much labor after and shed so many tears for the things of this present life, how am I to be bemoaned, pitied, and prayed for? My soul is dying. My soul is damned. For my soul but in a good condition and were I but sure of it, ah, how rich I should esteem myself, though blessed but with bread and water, I should count those but small afflictions and should bear them as little burdens. Folks, that's what justification is all about. Bringing one, like Bunyan wanted, into a good condition of soul with God. This is the central theme of the book of Romans. It really is. In your ESV Bibles, you will find some form of the term justification 26 times. Now, maybe that doesn't sound like a whole lot to you, but I can tell you this. It's more than you will find in any other book in all the Bible. This is the book we come to. Now, justification is talked about other places. No doubt. Galatians is a good place to go as well. But there is no book of equivalence in all of your Bible that so focuses on it as does the book of Romans. And you know what we want to look at today? The very first, very first occurrence of one of the forms of justification in the book of Romans. You know where it's found? In Romans chapter 2, and verse 13. Very first occurrence. Paul speaks for the first time about justification. Folks, this is the doctrine that fueled the Protestant Reformation. And this is the doctrine that the devil hates. And when error comes down the line, most of the time it attacks justification by faith. Most of the time, this is a core doctrine to our Christianity. This is a core doctrine to our standing with God. This is a core doctrine to our teaching in this church and to the message we have for the lost world out here, folks. This is it. This is the heart of the Gospel. This is the heart of whether you go to heaven or don't go to heaven. So, our text. Let's look at it. Romans 2.13 I'm going to isolate it right now. We're going to open this up a little broader into some of the context as we move forward. But just listen to this verse. 
For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. Now, now, hear what that's saying. It's not those that hear the law who have a righteous standing before God. But, so there's a contrast here. These people don't, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now you see the comparison. You have hearers only who are not righteous before God, doers of the law who will be justified. Now think about that for a moment. There it is. The very last word for the first time in the book of Romans, justified. And who will be justified? Who is righteous before God? Or in other words, who does God accept? The doers of the law. It's the doers of the law who will be justified. Wow! Paul! The first use of the term justified in the book of Romans, a book that heavily deals with it. We're thinking, Lord, you... You, you see this apostle and he, he's talking to us about justification. We already heard the righteous shall live by faith. And here the apostle was saying it's the doers of the law. What in the world is this? Now this brings us to what I believe is so critical and that we need to think really, really, really hard about. This is the question of the hour, folks. Does Paul mean this to be a hypothetical statement? Does he mean it hypothetically? Does he mean that doers of the law will be justified if any actually did what the law required? But none do, so none will ever be justified this way. Is this theoretical or hypothetical statement? laying out a principle that's valid, the only problem is nobody ever measures up to the principle. Is he saying that since no human being has ever fully obeyed the law, we must simply conclude Paul doesn't really mean anyone can be justified this way. Sinless perfection and law-keeping would be justified, but they just don't simply exist. So all people in the end, both Jews and Gentiles, are under judgment, need to be justified by faith rather than works in order to be saved. Is this what he's saying? Well, just hear me out here. Isn't this exactly what Paul says other places in Romans? For instance, Romans 3.20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. By works of the law, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in the sight of God. Pretty plain, right? Romans 3.28 For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Romans 4.5 And so the one who does not work but trusts Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Or Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Guys, so that should settle the matter, right? Could it be plainer than that? By works of the law, no flesh will be justified. And after all, isn't Paul's whole purpose in this whole, from halfway through chapter 1 to halfway through chapter 3, isn't his whole purpose to lay out and charge that all are under sin, there's none righteous, there's none that does good, every mouth should be stopped, all held accountable to God. Seems pretty logical, pretty straightforward, right? Pretty simple. That when he talks about the of the law being justified, that he really this is the standard, but nobody reaches it. But now hold on just a second. I would say this. That would be pretty good arguing. Because, after all, by the works of the law, we're not justified. I mean, that's, that's reasonable, folks. That's biblical truth. That's absolute fact. You are not by the works of the law. But, hold on just a second. Turn your eyes back. To Romans 2.13. And let's look at it a little more carefully as we read it through this time. It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now, Scripture does make it abundantly clear that we are not justified by works, but by faith alone in Jesus Christ. But, in Romans 2.13, Paul isn't saying that by doing the law, you will be justified. He only says that the ones who are justified are the ones that are doers of the law. Now, that's different. That's different. He's not saying by their law-keeping they're justified. He says the ones that are justified are the same ones who keep the law. Now, that's different. He's simply relaying a characteristic of those who are justified, not saying that characteristic is the means by which they're justified. There's a difference there, folks. And also recognize this. Paul in this text is not comparing faith and works. He's comparing those that hear only with those who do. Boy, that ought to remind us of some other places in Scripture right away. Guys, could it be that Paul calls a Christian a doer of the law? Is that possible? Boy, folks, there's so much proof of that in the Word. Could it be that Paul ascribes this title to a person who does sin at times, but they love God, they love His law, they grieve over their sin, they confess their sin, they repent of their sin, they look to God to help them keep the law, to strive to keep the law, is it possible that Paul could be describing a person like that as a doer of the law? I think, I think that's pretty reasonable. I think that's pretty reasonable. I believe that's exactly what Paul has in mind. 
Yes, it's true that Paul is describing the universal depravity of all men in these chapters. But I believe what is equally on his mind as he is describing the fallen state of man is to keep going back to Romans 1, 16 and 17 that there is a Gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. And that Gospel changes people. And what he keeps doing is reverting back again and again and again through this portion to say there is a people who have been radically changed through a powerful Gospel. I believe that that is, in fact, the point. Paul means there really are such people. They're the only people who acquitted at the judgment. When, when Christ comes into a person's life by the power of the Holy Spirit through faith in the Gospel, that person becomes a doer of the law. Not sinlessly perfect law keeper, but one who loves the law, shows it by dependence upon God to sustain him in loving it, desiring it, and doing it. Now, I don't know. Some of you might not be convinced yet. Some of you might be sitting there saying, you know, I don't even know that it matters that we need to be convinced. Well, listen. I want to take a few minutes to do exactly that. To convince you. The phrase, will be justified. Young people, those three words will be justified. There's a day when they will matter to you more than anything else. You may sit here right now with a thousand other things on your mind, but there's a day when that's all that will matter to you. And if you end up at that day and you are not justified, you will hate yourself. You will kick yourself. You will despise the day you sat and heard this and you ignored it and you did not count it seriously. This is important. If God renders a negative judgment against us, we will go to hell forever. And if God renders a positive judgment for us, we enter eternal life and have joy unspeakable and full of glory in God's presence forever. All the benefits and losses of this life are is nothing compared to the importance of being justified in that day. Nothing. The fact that doers of the law are the only ones this text says will be justified, it carries a reality, a weight, a seriousness, a greatness, folks, May God help us to feel it. Feel it. If it is doers of the law that will be justified and none else, we better figure out what that means. This is no small matter. Now, I want to give you a list of reasons that I believe that the Bible proves this is not hypothetical. But this is actually speaking about a Christian. First one. I mean, just lay it out there. Just read Romans 2.13 at face value. It doesn't seem like it's hypothetical. Paul doesn't give any allusion to it being hypothetical. I mean, basically, it's very straightforward to the effect that God gives eternal life. Not that He would, but that He does give eternal life to these people that are doers of the law. The second thing is, Look at the context leading into this. Go back to Romans 2.6. Now, hear what he says right before this. 
He, that's God, will render to each one according to His works. Now right there, folks, we're coming back to Judgment Day is involved in not God looking at people and saying, did you believe or didn't you believe? His, his approval of them will be based on their works. Not because faith doesn't matter. It matters much. You cannot be justified without it. But what is the judgment based on? It is based, folks, on works. And that work boiled right down comes to, did I do the law? Were my works consistent with the revealed will of God in His law, in His Word? That's, and look, look what goes on further from there. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. Go to verse 10. Glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. Now, guys, piece this all together in your minds. Eternal life is for those who do what? Do good. Well-doers. Now, is it doing good to keep God's law or to break God's law? I mean, folks, this is pretty straightforward stuff. What he's saying is, those who do good. Now, third point that I'll make here. Some of you might say, oh yeah, but I know my Bible well enough to know that just in a little while, Paul says there's none good, no, not one. So this is hypothetical too. Wait a second. Paul is speaking about man in his natural condition. Because folks, the fact is, there are people in the Bible that are described as righteous and good and doers of good. And in fact, as Christians, we are exhorted all over the place to be doers of good. You see, folks, this is not the description of us in our natural state. Because in our natural state, there are none that do good. No, not one. There are none righteous. There are no do-gooders. There are no law-keepers. But, folks, the third thing I would have you notice is if you go back up to verse 4, Paul speaks right there about the factor that makes the difference is repentance. You see that? What he's saying is repentance is the issue. You repent. You, you folks there, you are stiff-necked. You are given to, to self, self-indulgence and self... Um, well, what's the word he uses? Self-seeking. Do not obey the truth. That's down in verse 8. Folks, he's saying there needs to be repentance. There needs to be repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And what is it that makes the difference? It's repentance. They have hard hearts. But those who are patiently doing well show themselves to be a Christian. Not to be some legalist. But we'll move forward. My fourth thing is, the Bible describes doers of the law. You see, where? Well, folks, we interrupted our series in Luke to come over to Romans. Lord willing, one day we'll go back to Luke. Do you remember as we started out the book of Luke? Two people were described for us right off. Do you remember who they were? Zacharias and Elizabeth. Let me give you the inspired description of these two saints. Listen. They walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. 
blamelessly. And all the commandments and statutes of law, were they doers of the law? That's exactly what it says. They did all of His commandments. Now, does, do we take that as meaning that they never sinned in their life? No, all have sinned and fall short of the glory. What does that mean? Well, you see, when Scripture uses that description, it doesn't mean absolute, perfect law-keeping. Now, it's true. If we absolutely, perfectly kept the law, we would be saved. We would be justified. And it's true, we've all failed to do that. And so we do need a Savior. But what I'm trying to get across is when that Savior comes into a life, He makes us into lawdoers and lawkeepers and law upholders. That's exactly the point of the text. Now, if some of you still aren't convinced, this, I think, is probably one of the most... Con- I think the context is convincing. But, boy, fifth, Romans 8, 3 and 4. Just... Wherever you are right now, turn right over there. Romans 8, 3, and 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Now listen, what did He do? He sends His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh. And what is sin? Transgression of the law. Is it not? Is that not how 1 John defines it? He condemns it in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, some might say, yeah, but wait, that fulfillment, that's in a legal sense. I'll grant you, it does happen in a legal sense. But listen, right after this, he says, who walk. He's looking at the person's walk. Who walk. Not According to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, guys, go quickly forward to Romans 13. Romans 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. Now, listen to this very carefully. The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Do you see what that's saying? The Apostle is telling the Christians at Rome, fulfill the law. Love. And love is a fulfillment of the law. You guys, we have these groups of New Covenant folks. That's what they call themselves. We're a New Covenant church. We hold to it. We believe in it. But there are people in certain camps out here. They want to degradate the law. They want to tear the law down. They want to diminish it. Folks, look what the inspired Apostle says. Verse 9, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment. They're summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So, when it says those in the end who are going to be justified are doers of the law, the whole law is summed up in this. Love your neighbor. What he is saying is those who loved Christ, those who loved God, those who loved their neighbor, those who loved the lost, those who loved their brethren, those who poured out their love in a life like that, in the end, they're the ones that are going to be justified. They're the ones. Not based on that. The merit is not in those things. 
The merit is in the atonement of Christ. The cross is all the merit. It is all the satisfaction. But what I'm saying is this is a powerful Gospel that transforms those who used to be rebels, those who used to be lawbreakers, those who used to be defiling everything that was sacred, everything that was holy. They and they alone, by the transforming power of the Spirit of God, are changed from being those law defilers into being the doers and keepers of the law. You guys, listen to this. Number six, the parallel of 1 Corinthians 7.19, Galatians 5.6. Now don't turn there. You know these texts. I'm just going to speak them to you here. 1 Corinthians 7.19 Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Now listen to this. Galatians 5.6, I believe, says the exact same statement with different words. And listen to how he says it there. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. In one he says, keeping the commandments is what matters. In the other, faith working through love. What is love? It's summed up in all the commandments, folks. The keeping of the commandments is the love. He says this keeping of the commandments or this love is love that flows forth from what? Faith. Faith working through love. Faith working through the keeping of the commandments. Well, let's give you another one. Romans 3.31. Now this one I want you to look at because it's right in the context. Flip right back to Romans 3. Romans 3.31 Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Does faith negate the law? It upholds it. It turns the people that have that faith into upholders of the law. That's what it says. James 1.22 Don't turn there. Just listen to this. <laughs> listen to this with Romans 2.13 in your mind. Be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. What's he saying? Be doers and not hearers only. What does it say in Romans 2.13, it's not the hearers who are righteous before God. It's the doers of the law who will be. It's the exact same statement. Because in James, he says, don't deceive yourselves. About what? How, could, how were they being deceived? Well, thinking that if they were hearers only without actually being doers of the Word, that they would be justified in the end. And he's saying, no, you won't be justified. Don't deceive yourself. The only ones who will be justified are they that hear and do the Word. And don't make any dissection between the Word and the law. The law is in this Word. This is the Word of God. This is where we find the will of God. Folks, this literally comes out of Scripture everywhere. James goes on. Number 9, James 2, 21 and 22. Listen to this. Not Abraham our father justified 
By faith? No, no, no. That's not what he says. Justified by works. Whoa! When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. James, we need explanation here. Okay, he goes on to say that. James says in verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. True faith is always completed by works that flow from that faith. And he goes on to say, you tell me you have faith, and if there's no works, his conclusion is, it's dead faith. It's dead. It cannot save. It cannot justify. And even the devils believe. But they're not going to be justified in the end. The only certain proof that faith is true is you are keeping the commandments. Boy, how many times we go down to the bridge ministry and this guy comes up, he's a stinking drunk. Yeah, I was that before. I'm not saying that just to be derogatory of other people outside. That was me before. I was that person. But they come up, they still have alcohol on their breath, and well, let me tell you, I'm a Christian. And you begin to challenge them on it, and they get upset, they get irate. Judge not, lest you be judged. Or they, they love to quote Romans 7. I do the things I don't want to do. Please. You love that bottle. Don't give me that story. But now, go back to Romans chapter 2. Because my tenth support that this is not hypothetical comes in what I think, oh, folks, this is just, this is glorious. Romans chapter 2. Look with me at verse 25. Circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Now look at verse 26 because this is, this is incredible. If a man who is uncircumcised... That's us, folks. We're the uncircumcised. Even if you're circumcised as a Gentile, that, this is what's being spoken about. You're a Gentile. That, that's what the whole point is here. Even if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law. There we have it again. He's keeping the righteous requirements of the law, which some of your translations actually say. Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then, he who is physically uncircumcised, the external thing, but fulfills or keeps the law, will condemn. When? At Judgment Day. That's the whole thing. They will rise up. The uncircumcised who were keepers of the law, they will rise up and condemn you who have the written code. You have the Word of God and circumcision, but you break the law. And look at this. This is his conclusion of the matter. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. Oh, folks. Here again, you have someone keeping the requirements of the law. Paul looks at the Gentiles, the uncircumcised, 
and sees some of them grasping the true meaning of the law, and he says they are actually keeping it. They are in reality, of all things, the true Jew. They will in reality be the ones justified. Paul, you know what he wants to do here? If you, if you wonder, Paul, why in the world, when you're trying to convince all of mankind that they're under sin, why are you talking, why are you even bringing this in? You see what he was wanting to do? These Jews, they thought they were God's people. They thought they had a straight line to heaven because they were religious. They were in the bloodline of Abraham. They'd been given the Word of God. The Messiah was promised to come out of their lineages. They thought they were God's people simply because of all that He had given to them. And Paul says, you know what? There's no partiality with God. You don't get into glory based on the merits of your connection with Abraham. And he blows them away. He seeks to rattle them. In fact, he says, you know something? On Judgment Day, not only is there going to be no partiality, some of these Gentiles who you despise, you sit back and judge, who are out there worshiping their idols, are actually going to be converted. They're going to repent and on Judgment Day, not only are you going to, not going to be looking down at them or just on an even playing field with them, they're going to be above you looking down and condemning you. Because they were true keepers of the law. Because circumcision and your recognition before God is not in the external chopping off of a little bit of skin off your body. It has to do with the heart matter. Circumcision is really a matter of the heart. And being a Jew is not about being born in Israel. It's being about being a keeper of the law and keeping it by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the issue. That's the life. That's the reality. This is the crux of the matter. And you know what he says in the end of all this? They do it by the Spirit. It's according to the Spirit, not according to the letter. That's the issue. If you want to see how, how it is that works justify us in that day, this is the issue. You know what the Jews did? They simply looked on things externally. They were legalists. They basically felt if we do the external things, have ourselves circumcised, if we wear the right clothes, wash our hands at the right times, if we do all these things, Paul says, it's a matter of the Spirit. It's a matter of the Spirit. The context again bears witness to this being the appropriate translation of this. The understanding of this. This is why Paul talks about circumcision to the Colossians and says you were circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands. This is why he says to the Philippians in Philippians 3.3 You, Philippian Gentiles, you are the true circumcision. You, that your glory is in Jesus Christ. You worship God in the Spirit. You put no confidence in the flesh. You are the true circumcision. And how are they described right here in Romans chapter 2? They're the ones who fulfill the law. They're keeping the law. And they do it by the Spirit. Folks, 11th argument here, the, the New Covenant. Listen to the, the, the very standards of the New Covenant is given in Ezekiel and given in Jeremiah. Ezekiel 36.27 
I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes. When the Spirit comes, we are caused to walk in His statutes and be careful to obey My rules. Jeremiah 31.33 This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put My law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God. And they shall be My people. Folks, this is not legalism. This is not earning salvation. This is the obedience that flows from faith. A law-keeping that flows from dependence and trust in God. The idea of fulfilling the law is definitely a Christian experience. It definitely happens in the lives of those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Lord, uh, folks, we, we could, I have others, but for the sake of time, I'm going to chop it short because I think I've made my point. I just want to give you the last argument here from the words of Jesus Christ Himself because I think that's so important. Listen to the things Christ said. For one, He said to the Jews, you know what? Men and women, young people and children are going to come from the east and they're going to come from the west and they're going to come from the north and they're going to come from the south and they're going to sit down justified in glory at the supper table of the Lamb with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the sons of the kingdom are going to be cast out, shut out in utter darkness where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. You know why? Because they sought it externally. The heart of the matter is possessing the Spirit and out of faith seeking to keep the law by the power of God, not in our own strength. Jesus Christ said in Matthew 7, He said, I'm going to give you this illustration. There are some that hear My Word and do it. And I liken them to a man who builds his house upon the rock. And there are some who hear My Word and they don't do it. And I liken them to a foolish man. He builds his house upon the sand. Right before this, He said it's not everybody that comes to Him and says, Lord, Lord, that's head to heaven. He said it's those who do the will of My Father in heaven. Folks, He said all over the place these kind of things. He said unless you forgive, you will not be forgiven based on your works. He said, folks, in that day, you will be justified by the words you speak. You will be justified or you will be condemned by the words you speak. He said, whatever happened to... Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Folks, it's right in there. What I tell you is this. There is a judgment coming. God has given us a Gospel to prepare us for that coming judgment. That Gospel He's given us is not a weak thing. It transforms lives. The Spirit of God does not bring the Gospel into a life and leave it under the dominion of sin. With great power, the Spirit produces obedience flowing from a faith that is placed in the Gospel. Where the Gospel is believed, trusted, and cherished, it produces what Paul calls the obedience of faith. 
These are the infallible sign of what fills the heart. The issue is not really are we saved by faith in Christ or by law keeping. The issue is on judgment day, how will God make manifest that his judgment is just? And the answer is he will certify to the world that we have saving faith by calling our deeds to attest to its reality. That's how he'll do it. Come with me for a moment. Every one of you, every person in this room will be at this judgment. Come with me to it. The courtroom of the Almighty God, all the world, will be assembled before the righteous judge. And all, every one of you and me, will be guilty of capital offenses. All of us. Offenses that demand our death. Yet, in that hour, some will be acquitted. Some will. They will be justified and others condemned. The deepest reason for the separation is that one group has been forgiven because of their union with Jesus Christ by faith. And the other does not have that union. But what Paul is teaching in Romans 2 is that in that courtroom, a witness will be called forth to testify to the reality of faith or its absence. There will be a witness called forth in that day. And that witness is my deed. And your deeds. Folks, look at your life. Is your life a fulfillment of the law? Is, can you say that when living a life, it's self-absorbed. Your decisions are made in your life primarily concerning yourself your things, you esteem your stuff above other people's things, your life is lived for you, in the end, it doesn't matter whether you drop a check for $75 in that box back there. When it's all boiled down, do the works of your life attest to the fact and the reality that you were indwelt by this powerful Holy Spirit, that you were radically transformed by this Gospel, that you actually have a living, vital faith in Jesus Christ. It's attested to by living out what you believe. Don't you see, folks? The reason that Abraham could bring his son up onto that altar and be ready to plunge the knife in is because he believed that when God said from the loins of his son would come this nation and all nations would be blessed as a result, he believed God. And he believed even if I plunge this in, God is able to raise this boy from the dead. I believe what God has said and I'm willing to walk that line and show my trust. You see, folks, you believe. Folks, can you... Listen, this is so crazy. We say, yes, 
We believe that if we live this life well spent and we have these works and we live like Christ, that on Judgment Day, we will be rewarded for it. That there are eternal rewards and that we're storing up treasure in heaven and there will be this greeting from the Lord in that day, well done, good and faithful servant. And He will be extremely pleased with us. If we look at that and we say we believe it and we turn around and we walk out here and we don't do anything with our lives, you show by your very works you don't believe it. Because I'll tell you this, folks. If you believe that going to the right... I mean, folks, somebody walks up here off the street right now and I told them if you go left, you'll find a million dollars over there. If you go right, you're going to find a pit over here you'll fall into and likely die. Well, you know what? If the guy believes what he said, what I said, what's he going to do? He's not going to go over here and jump in the pit. When Christ says, bring the lame and the blind and the maimed to your house when you have a meal, and you will be rewarded in that day. And you don't do it. But rather, you invite the people over who you know are going to invite you back over. Do we believe it? Do we believe the words of this book? Boy, if we really believe it, we will, we will go further and run farther and run faster. Have we been fulfillers of the law? The doing of... We must understand that this judgment according to law keeping does not mean we earn our salvation. Our deeds do not earn salvation. They exhibit our salvation. Judgment will not be determined by whether you're a Jew, by whether you're a Gentile, by whether you're in a proper bloodline, by whether... You see, folks, this whole argument, it just destroys everything men trust in in this world. Whether it's their, their religion... It doesn't matter. How about we go out here on the streets? What do people tell us? I go to church. I'm on the choir. I was baptized. I did this. I raised my hand. I walked this aisle. Folks, doers of the law shall be, will be, are the only ones who can be justified in that day. Doesn't matter if you were baptized. Doesn't matter if you went to church. Doesn't matter all these things. Is the faith real and is it attested to by a life that is so radically transformed by the power of God that it is lived out differently? Because I'm telling you, if you have real faith, the witness in that day will attest to it. There are certain works that go along with faith and there are certain works that go along with unbelief. In that day, it will be shown whether your trust within your own physical strength, whether it was in your checkbook, in your money, in the things in this world. And it will not fail. It will be accurate 100% of the time. It will bear witness faithfully to who and what you are. There's no getting around it. No getting around it. Folks, when we trust Christ to bring us to the Father. We trust Him to enable us to do whatever it takes to get to Him. If there's good deeds that need to be done, you don't turn from faith to get to the Father. You don't turn to works. You lean all the more on Christ who will work in you what is pleasing in God's sight. When He died for you, 
He didn't purchase just justification for you. He purchased regeneration, transformation, sanctification. If you need to be holy in works and in keeping the law, He will give you what you need to pull all that off. Folks, Titus 2.14 says that Jesus Christ, the very Lamb of God, He laid down His life. He gave Himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness and purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous of good works. You know what that basically translates to? Jesus died to make His people into law keepers, law upholders, law fulfillers. Not just a little but to be zealous of it. In summary then, and I'm done folks, in the last day, there will be a judgment. It will settle finally. It will settle publicly who enters eternal life and who doesn't. The verdict not guilty at this judgment is what justification is all about. And that justification will be based on the work of Christ on the cross. The guilt of all true believers was carried by Jesus. Scripture says the Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. But that verdict will accord with our deeds. That our daily lives will give evidence that we trusted Christ. Folks, I hope you will ponder this very, very, very carefully. You will give an account. Guys, faith faith in Jesus Christ is our righteousness. That will be our standing in that day. That is the essence and the heart of the Gospel. Christ lived for us. Christ died for us. Christ rose for us. He reigns for us. He intercedes for us. Christ will come for us. Christ is our Advocate. He will be our final Judge. Faith in Him is the key to life. But beware! That faith that produces no love, no keeping of the law, no keeping of the commandments, no obedience, the faith that will never save you. Lord, I pray. Oh Lord, my prayer has been that our fruit, our love would grow, Lord, in leaps and bounds in the year to come. Father, make this church take this to heart. May we feel the weight of this. That it is only the doer of the law who will be acquitted, justified, freed in that day. Only them and none others. Father, may any deception that those that are here might have be cleared away. May the reality in the heart of this all may it affect us, Lord. In Christ's name I pray. You're dismissed.